Welcome to Cinemakers, Amy Heckerling. This is episode 53, I Could Never Be Your Woman, from 2007. I'm Mike Manson. I'm Carrie Gallo-Regan. And I'm Joey Lewandowski. And this movie, I don't know if it's good or not, but like, I love this movie. Right? It's inexplicable. I think there are problems with it, but like, it is such a dumb, fun movie and like a smart, fun movie. And like, I just got to say, Saoirse, God damn it is incredible in this movie. A little, like, what, eight-year-old, maybe? Saoirse Ronan? So young. Maybe 11 or 12, but she's so good. Yeah, she's excellent. I had totally forgotten she was even in this movie. I'd only seen it once a while, I guess in 2007, on HBO. And, yeah, it was a delight, like, especially after last week. I mean, boy, like, this just feels like maybe not a complete and total rebound, but, like, way further in the direction that I like and the stuff that I think she excels more at this type of thing, too. It just feels like, feels good to watch. If last week's episode was like bizarro clueless, this is like meta clueless kind of? It feels very autobiographical to me. Definitely. Right? Like a successful single mom in the industry. I love that about it too. Like that hooked me again that it's like an insider industry movie. I love those types of films and like, yeah, so like this, you know, we've been saying kind of all along with the movies she's been writing and directing from like Clueless to Look Who's Talking, like I feel like I know this person through her film and like this one definitely feels Michelle Pfeiffer might be possibly playing Amy Heckerling in this movie. Yeah, and I mean, Michelle Pfeiffer has always been a goddess, but she is so hot in this movie that, like, at one point she had, and like I said in the last episode, Amy Heckerling's, like, one of her personal trademarks is crazy hair, and Michelle Pfeiffer has some pretty crazy hair in this movie, and at one point she actually has two pens stuck in there. (laughs) And it just, it delighted me to no end. Well, Kara, you know how you get that hairstyle, egg beater. Right. I do like that this now falls into the subset of movies along with New Year's Eve, where Michelle Pfeiffer is beautiful, and yet the world sees her as like this, like, unattractive, hideous, like, cave person, where, you know, when she's in the club and people are just giving her all those glares, and or maybe, maybe that's a perception thing, like, she's just thinking that they're thinking that. But again, like, in New Year's Eve, she plays this, like, mousy secretary, and only Zac Efron can see her true beauty, and it's just like, oh oh, okay, she's beautiful. Like, I just, it's just funny because, I mean, we also talk about how in Zac Efron movies, people, like, joke about how he's not, like, there's, like, a point made that he is not good looking and that's the joke there, I guess. This doesn't feel like a joke. It just feels like, oh, no, it's just Michelle Pfeiffer, one of the most beautiful women of all time, playing someone who is not seen as beautiful anymore, maybe because she's over 40? I don't know, but... Mm -hmm. No, it's very much an age thing. I mean, that's the whole theme of the movie is aging and how about that Mother Nature, though? Oh, Oh, Tracy Holmes. So good. So odd. I mean, technically terrible, but I enjoyed this kind of blending of Amy Heckerling's like fantasy dream sequence altered state sort of thing that she's so good at with like blending it into reality in a way that we haven't necessarily seen yet by having this character. Yeah, her film language is like on full display here. Like I feel like she's kind of taking all of those little tricks up to different levels. Like with the Mother Nature character, I actually quite like that, how she sort of popped into frame and, and only the main character could see her and, and everything. I thought that was uh, that was a really sweet touch. And then also I said like the club fantasy sequence thing, like how that just, that was more like a daydream. It wasn't like actual dream, which was cool. And it, yeah, I mean, this movie is just really interesting too. Like there's a lot of 
levels to it. Like, obviously, there's the the ageism stuff, but there's also definitely the the sexism stuff, right? Like, this is this is like a very chauvinistic world that she has to navigate. It does a really good job of portraying it through this character's eyes. You know, like she's beautiful, and people think she's beautiful, but it's like a self-esteem thing because of all the other issues. Like, it becomes her just weighing on herself, really. And I thought that was an interesting take on stuff. Like, people aren't calling her ugly. She's not supposed to be ugly or anything like that but it's like other things you know like John Lovitz for crying out loud was her first husband and you know I did write down in what universe are those two married he's funny he makes her laugh (laughs) his side of the story is like he left her for a 20 something year old and is like trying to seem you know in his 30s and hip and stuff and she actually seems like someone trying to embrace her age somehow right like at least not like by the end of the movie at least like comes to terms with that part of herself and i just thought that that was an interesting journey i mean it it is interesting for sure and it seems novel because this isn't something that we see this is a perspective that we don't see in film a lot slash ever but this is something that women go through you know as they get old and especially in industries that value youth as much as for example hollywood does i'm not even that old yet and i'm already having to grapple with the fact that i'm becoming an older woman and how that is going to affect how people treat me and my career and stuff like that so again here are these things that are facts of life for women that we just never get to see on screen because of who gets to tell stories and now that we have in this case a woman actually telling her own story more or less we see this stuff and it seems so new and unusual but this is just something that we like the vast majority of us have to go through and navigate on a day-to-day basis like i love that mother nature is just like always eating yes it's almost like she's you know the good and bad angel on either shoulder except that she's just like the worst possible version of herself at all times and and just trying to like ignore that voice and trying to do what people expect you to do and i found the whole thing even like if the technical execution of it wasn't great it just really interesting and fun you know what that kind of made me think about is it felt like a very clever way to get around voiceover Mm -hmm. you know like instead of having michelle pfeiffer's character break into voiceover and just have you know shots of her thinking and stuff like this is kind of cool like it is that devil angel kind of thing all in one character it's like very economic that way and uh, it, it's kind of like not how at first I would have expected Mother Nature to act, but then like it makes kind of total sense in a, in a, in a weird way. Yeah. Even if that is just her conjuring that version of Mother Nature, I thought it was a very fun take on that. Like she isn't just so endearing and sweet and motherly all the time, or she is motherly, but like to be motherly isn't always to be tender. Like sometimes you need tough love too. So I thought that was cool. And I love that the film opens with her... I was going to say monologue, but it's really more of a rant. Like, before we even get to meet any of the other characters in this story, we meet Mother Nature, and she's just going off on all sorts of bizarre things. It definitely, like, took me back to the opening of Look Who's Talking, that I was just sitting there like, this is so weird. I can't believe that this got made. What is happening? Yeah. Because the movie begins and we have Tracy Ullman railing against baby boomers and women and basically just how all of mankind is selfish. And I was like, I don't know what this movie is about. And then I looked on Letterboxd and I don't know if you either of you read the description of this movie on Letterboxd, which I'm assuming is just the same description as it is everywhere. But there's a little bit of a special thing at the end. So it says, this movie follows a mother who falls for a younger man while her daughter falls in love for the first time. Fine. Cool. Perfect. Then it just says, mother nature messes with their fates. It's like, what is this movie 
about like I saw that and I was like is this movie like about Tracy Ullman which it's not really but I think you're right Mike like I don't think that it has to be like she doesn't need to belong here but it is sort of an interesting film way to avoid voiceover and just have another character there plus like you know I could just watch Michelle Pfeiffer and Tracy Ullman laying in bed while Tracy Ullman eats a sandwich and they just like <laughs> shoot the shit forever like it's just like the these weird little scenes that are just great yeah I feel like everyone's got like pretty great chemistry and like those two especially and I think Michelle Pfeiffer and Paul Rudd of course I think they're they feel like real natural, a little pre-Ant-Man 2 reunion here, pre-union. But yeah, I agree with you. Like, I just feel like it adds a nice dimension to sort of keep it light and things never get like ultra dark or anything. But I mean, like they handle, again, topics that, you know, women go through every day of their life that guys don't really get to see, especially in film portrayed when they go into stuff like her daughter getting her period for the first time. I was so excited that that happened. <laughs> I wrote that down. The mom is so sweet and tender and like they go to the supermarket and like there's no there's no shame. There's no hiding. There's none of that stuff. And like, again, this is just more stuff that we never get to see in film that is part of everyday life that it was nice there. And then I just think to counterpoint that with the Tracy Ullman character can keep it from getting too serious, I think, you know, and like having to go too far with any one thing and, and like divorce and things like they keep all that stuff pretty light, even when it comes to the dating and the age stuff, like it's all still pretty light and they go into it, but like it never becomes sort of life or death, like nothing is in this movie. So I don't know. I just appreciated that, that when things are at their worst, it's not because like someone died or anything like that for once. It's like they kept it light and I appreciated it. Well, because she has, I'm, I'm assuming this is also true of Amy Hackerling, like she, like Michelle Pfeiffer's character has like a blessed life, you know what I mean? Like she has a great life, she's got, I mean, she's divorced, but she's got a great kid who has a great, she has a great relationship with, she's got a good job that she's good at. And even like with her ex-husband, they have a pretty friendly relation, like a working parenting relationship which is nice. And there's no stupid subplot about like, I guess they're also way past that, but in terms of like, who gets the kid and where's the kid? And you know what I mean? Like, there's none of that. It's just, they have a system figured out. This is working for both of them. He's welcome around. Like, there's even a joke at the end that like, you know, Paul Rudd is the first guy that she's dated that John Lovitz wants to hang out with. And he doesn't want her to screw this up because he found the new friend too. Like, they're all that close. Like, it just seems like, yeah, she has shit go wrong in her life and her assistant is manipulative and tries to ruin her life and all this different stuff. But like, her life is good. And she's got real things going wrong, but it's also in a way, like, she's got life pretty much figured out, which is kind of refreshing to see this, like, powerful, strong, smart career woman just doing her thing, and then, like, the story is about that. Yeah, this is starting to feel like uh, we should suggest it to Contenders Pod one day and put it over on their list. Yeah, I would love to hear what they had to say about it. Yeah, I feel like it, it rings several of those bells, right, when they when they raffle off, like, the producer, the writer, the director, the lead actor, like, a lot of the that ground is covered here by females, and and it's very centric to that, and that's very good. Yeah, I mean, that that's nice. But on the other end of that, the production company behind this movie, I actually spent a really long time this afternoon like going down a rabbit hole trying to track the con artist, basically, who like started this production company. Oh, boy. Yeah, it's a whole thing. But basically, this guy multiple times has, in France, where he actually served time in prison for fraud. Cool. And then in the UK, and then in the United States, and several states in the United States, he'll like go places where there are tax incentives for films, get all of this financing, and then completely bungle the production and distribution of the films. And that's exactly what happened in this case. The film sat on a shelf for quite a while with cast 
Cast and crew wondering if it would ever even be released. And then finally, you know, they kept like pushing the release date. And then finally, it was supposed to come out in March of 2007. And then a day before Michelle Pfeiffer, who had already given several interviews promoting the film, the day before she was supposed to get on a plane and begin her publicity duties, it would announce that the film would then only play in limited markets and then eventually just went straight to DVD. So it's interesting that in this movie, we see Michelle Pfeiffer's character as a producer kind of running up against sexism in Hollywood. And we've talked in the past, kind of wondered aloud about how much back and forth Heckerling has had to do with studios or like when she was working on the Clueless TV show, which a lot of this movie is actually based on, you know, dealing with the network and the studios and yada, yada, yada. And we actually get to see a lot of that in this movie. And then it's such a tragedy that it played out kind of the way it did behind the scenes, because men get to make mistakes all the time and they get to make bad movies or get they get to make movies that flop or they never come out and people still give them another chance and when women screw up or even if it's not their fault that their movie didn't do well or was never released this actually had this and loser had a huge negative impact on heckerling's career that like people didn't want to hire her to make movies anymore which is super fucked up yeah it's fucked up because that's all not in her control it's all on the other end of production, Mm -hmm. right? Like, that's how it seems. I mean, that that is... That's a bummer. And even a lot of the, the technical problems with this movie, like, it does not look good. The lighting is weird and bad, and I don't understand why. In post, it looks like they sort of oversaturated yeah. it at times and pumped up the brightness and really doctored it. When was this actually shot if it came out in 07? Do you know when? So I think it was maybe like 2004, 2005. Whoa. Okay, that's that's very long to sit on the shelf. Okay. Like, the financing for this came from a British tax incentive so they had to shoot a certain majority of the film in the UK to qualify for the incentive so all of the lighting that's supposed to be like Southern California sunlight is fake England and it's not Bill Pope style either I'll tell you that no no and also even in 2004 and 2005 obviously we didn't quite have the technology to do post-production effects that we have now but they allocated two weeks to do a little over two weeks to do the graphics work and the like especially I guess with the mother nature character and how weird she looks they scheduled over two weeks to do it and then they finished it in just under two days because they were like hey this new software came out and we can do it so much faster with this why don't we just do this which is why a lot of those digital effects look so horrendous I really don't mind the digital you, you keep saying that Mike you were saying too like I don't mind the digital effects in this I also think the weird lighting kind of fits in with the a TV show within a movie sort of thing yeah to me it felt intentional I mean if this is if they just want to make a good looking movie then maybe I could reevaluate but I didn't have a problem with any of that like I thought the weird meta nature of Tracy Ullman as mother nature like if she just looked like authentic like I would like, I would have been fine with that too but I feel like this fit that and I also felt like the weird colors and saturation and brightness and everything sort of fit like the terrible I mean like the show that they're making is modeled after Clueless but it's not a good show like it is a very bad show and it felt like it was sort of poking fun at those types of shows you know what I mean like it wasn't like they were trying to make a groundbreaking great program within the movie they were making something where like Michelle Pfeiffer very very white is like writing the most urban slang and just like it just it sounds ridiculous like it's just like it's all poking fun at it. and I thought that the, the lighting of this movie played in 
into that. Like, I had no problems with, you know, the way that any of this looked. Yeah. I think there's a certain amount of intentionality there, I think, especially when they're on the set within a set. Like, there's a particular look to those shots that I think was intentional. But overall, Heckerling's lighting has, up to this point, been really interesting and something that I have admired a lot. And so to then see this, I was just kind of like, oh, why? Why is any of this? I wonder how much of that is intentional, too, because, like, thinking about the story and the plot of the movie and then thinking about how much that feels like a sitcom premise is there supposed to be some kind of overlap like are her worlds colliding and is the movie sort of representing that like in its look from time to time or even in the sort of the nature of their relationship like their montage just is like the most adorable thing when they're throwing popcorn at each other and things and just just them in general like I feel like that could run three or four seasons as a 22 minute show from time to time I was sort of getting that feel like I, I wonder not just the look of this but but story-wise, like if she was sort of going for some sort of my life is a TV show, how ridiculous it could be. And like, you know, can you even believe like this is my life? It's all out of control. So I I thought that was pretty interesting. Ultimately, I just, I did enjoy the movie. So whatever ended up happening, like it didn't, to me, I don't feel the holes in it nearly as much as last week when we were watching Loser, which, which really felt like someone was meddling a lot. This just feels like someone maybe like tampered a little bit. Yeah. Well, she also, because they had to uh, do most of the production in the UK, I've mentioned previously that she had worked with the same editor on most of her stuff up to now. And she had worked with like a few other kind of vital crew people that she wasn't able to bring with her into this production. So I could kind of sense that with this but I think the bungling, like you said, mostly happened in distribution of it and not necessarily so much on the production or post-production end like it did with Loser. Yeah, I feel like this would have played okay in theaters, too. I don't know. It's so weird. It's a real weird movie, Mike. I'm not, I'm not sure. But that's the thing about it is like all of Amy Heckerling's movies are sort of stood out for being weirder than the normal, right? And it's not even because they're all that weird. It's just because... These are common things we haven't seen a lot of in theater, you know, like Kara has been pointing out along the way, right? Like, these are things she's aware of. These are just things that men aren't aware of because the men in charge don't want to watch this kind of stuff. I feel like, though, if it did get a a wide theatrical release, they probably would have cut the Mother Nature scene at the opening. Like, because that took a lot of buy-in, I think, to, like, get through that and still be like, I'm going to continue watching this movie because it's just so bizarre and it's so unexpected. I wonder now, knowing, I wonder if they had time knowing that they weren't going to theaters and they recut the opening title sequence because that was disgusting. And I I was like, oh, my gosh, because it's all like plastic surgery stuff oh yeah i forgot about that yeah but it's like early plastic surgery stuff from like the 60s and shit and it's just like (laughs) i was diverting my eyes like with everything i was like maybe i could nope i was like this is worse than the nick by the end of that series i was like i thought my eyes were invincible but now i was like oh she did it she made me put hands in front of my face yeah but it's you know here she is showing these unpolished like the dark side, the real side of what aging in Hollywood is about, especially for women, because obviously men are able to have longer 
careers and stuff, but from like early Hollywood, aging women have been facing this looming and impending obsolescence that like they know is coming. And so people get plastic surgery, they get Botox, they do all sorts of things. And I'm not passing any sort of judgment. I mean, if you want to change your face, that's fine. But it's bad because people feel like they have to do it and not necessarily want to do it. Like there's that scene when she's like waiting to talk to one of the executives at the network, I think, where she's like sitting in a waiting room and there are these two men and they're they're going down this list of aging actresses yep. trying to pick yep. one out for a project and they're just listing them off and like, no, hag, 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 too old, way too old. And then they mentioned Cher and they said something terrible. Oh. Like if you could turn back time or not even if you could turn back time. Yeah. And she snaps and she grabs the man like very violently by the face and kind of tells him off and tells him he's not worthy of kissing Cher's tattooed ass. And I just loved that because how many times have women overhear conversations about other women and it's just like, what the fuck? You know, like if you would say that those things about her, what would you say about me behind my back? You know, and just like hearing that kind of stuff all the time kind of drives us crazy and it's nice to see somebody just kind of snap and be able to say the things that we're all thinking. I love that scene. It was interesting to me that they cut to the receptionist Mm -hmm. who doesn't really react one way or the other. She's like shocked by it, but she doesn't disprove or disapprove of her or doesn't like approve like in a movie where the TV show is called You Go Girl. Like she could say something like that. You know what I mean? But it felt like this very poignant moment and I think it's important. It was just weird that they paid attention to cut to the receptionist and like she just didn't react maybe it's just a minor thing I don't know I suspect that that assistant has seen a lot of weird shit probably probably and this is just like one in a long you know she could write a crazy memoir about all the weird things she's seen happen and weird people and whatever that has gone on in that waiting room because as an assistant you wind up seeing a lot of things that you otherwise wouldn't expect sure one last thing on that plastic surgery note which I thought was kind of interesting is how uh, like John Lovett's character was like the surrogate of all that in this film where you know ordinarily stereotypically I guess you could say it's like always you know you think of women generally getting work done and stuff but like no I feel like this is trying to say men, just as many men are just as self-conscious right about doing it and for just as sort of not necessarily shallow but like maybe not necessarily like healthiest reason like because it is mostly more for ego I suppose than uh, for necessity or something like that and so it was another one of those interesting turns I guess that you just don't generally see like I don't think I've ever seen a guy in a film get plastic surgery unless like he had his face like punched in in a fight right right? or something like that Again, like that was a good touch. That was a nice. I'm glad she put that in. Yeah, and it, it makes the point, uh, which is very true, that like these impossible to attain standards that we see in movies, on TV, in magazines, all of it is like it's not just bad for women. It's bad for all of us, and most of it is just a mirage because people have had so much work done, or because they've been airbrushed in Photoshop, or like whatever. We're all holding ourselves to these insane standards that like are not normal 
normal and are not natural for anyone of any age, really. And I think there's another joke there, too, in that John Lovitz is the one that gets the work done, but he's doing it out of laziness. Like, he gets his chin, he gets a chin implant because he doesn't have to touch his face that way, right? So he doesn't have to exercise. Yeah. So, like, I think that there's a little bit of, like, a, like he's he's doing, he doesn't really want to do it. He sort of feels like he has to. I don't, I don't know. I feel like there's something a little bit more there that, you know, again, like many of, like, the things that she does puts in her movies, it's it's layered in, a, in an interesting way. Yeah. You know, I was also trying to think, like, when John Levitt showed up, I was like, oh, he's back in another one of Amy Heckerling's movies. And I was like, well, no, wait, we just watched Trapped in Paradise with Kara for Cage Club, and he was on that. But, like, I have in my brain, like, okay, the three of us and John Lovitz and movies all linked. But I was like, oh, it just, just so happened that the only other thing that we've watched or talked about together recently was not an Amy Heckerling movie that also had John Lovitz in it. So I thought that was a, a weird little serendipitous moment. Uh, Saoirse Ronan has a line. So John Lovitz was the critic which was a animated show that was on when we were younger. And he had a, not a catchphrase, but anytime he saw like a sexy woman, he would say, Hachimachi. And Saoirse Ronan in this says, Hachimama, when she sees a sexy lady. So I thought that was funny. I mentioned at the top, but I want to talk for like, maybe like an hour about just how good Saoirse is in this movie. <laughs> She's so good. She can sing. She can play guitar. She can act. She's adorable. She's funny. The way that she plays Barbies is my favorite thing maybe of all time. When Michelle Pfeiffer's like, why is Ken in the heat vents? And she says, oh, you remember when he ran away with Alzheimer's and couldn't find his way back? Like, he just wound up in the heat vent. Like, these weird little, like, surreal adult mind in a child body. It just, it was so much fun. Like, I just loved it. I loved it so much. She almost reminded me of, like, Rosie's inner child, because I feel like at times the Rosie character, Michelle Pfeiffer character, she's trying, you know, she's like, oh, I don't, you know, I'm trying not to act my age. Like, I want to be younger. What's cool? And I mean, part of it is a byproduct of having to work on that show. It's like she just needs to be up to date with new lingo and things. And so I think that's just part of it is like, she actually is pretty cool, if you ask me. Like, she just maybe, you know, doesn't need to try as hard as I feel the character feels she does and stuff. But I like how her daughter sort of like balances her out a little bit, not only to say like, that's not what the kids are saying, but also to be like, it's okay to be my mom kind of stuff. Like, it's all right to be, it's kind of interesting to have the daughter, like the kid remind the adult, be yourself because like so many movies are about kids trying to find out who, like they don't know who they are and stuff. But Saoirse Ronan's character seems to have like a great sense of herself and stuff. And, and it like brings Michelle Pfeiffer back every once in a while to realize like, oh yeah, like I can be myself too. Like I have a self who's worth being and like, it's a very interesting person and let me do that instead of this over here or something else or trying to impress somebody. The moment they might bond over the most is when she stands up to Wallace Shawn back in another one of Clueless and another one of Amy Heckling's movies and stands up for her in class and like says like why do you have to make her think that she trick her into thinking she's dumb just because like you're trying to make her good for a test like it's this real powerful mom moment that in spite of her being like a professional woman like it's this this other thing this other side of her it kind of reminds me just now they're talking about it Mike of In the Valley of Ella with where you have two different sides of the Charlize character right like mom and professional and like it's it's cool to see that she's so confident and assured in both yeah that was actually like really touching to me because I had the same problem of like being super bad at math and sometimes I could solve it and like get the right answer but I couldn't get there the way that they wanted me to get there and it was just so awesome to hear Michelle Pfeiffer's character say like but that's just not how her brain works like that's it's stupid that you're trying to make her change when she like she's still getting the right answer so that, that like 
I found that very touching. I, and I also just like how Heckerling can just throw in these modern things, I guess, like the whole thing about standardized testing. Like I just, you know, remember when it was like, yeah, teachers literally started teaching the test, right? Just so that they could get paid and get tenure. And it's a little thing, but it's in here, you know, it's a line of dialogue, but like it goes a long way. They're arguing over something real. They don't have a lot of time to explore it. But like you said, like it makes a big impact. That was one thing that sort of like caught me a little off guard about this movie in a way is like it only came out 10 years ago, but it feels like it's older than that. Mm-hmm. I think some of the music, unfortunately, for me. Well, I guess I think that's maybe also just what Kara was saying earlier about like production delays and release delays and stuff like that. Right. Like, you know, a lot of Blink-182 and stuff that maybe wasn't as big in 07. But like when she's singing about George Bush, I was like, does this fit? I was like, oh, right. Like not only is this like during his presidency, but like it's the end of it. Like it's 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 just this weird like I don't know where my mic if if you told me this came out in the 90s i would have been like yep that makes that makes sense no there's too many tiny hair clips for it to be the 90s it's decidedly (laughs) too early 2000s so many tiny hair clips save the last dance which i watched recently a prime example of early 2000s overutilization of tiny hair clips and also the great zigzag part which should come back Ooh, I know the I know the zigzag part. Am I am I to start keeping an eye out not only for eyebrows but also for tiny hair clips? I mean, if you feel so inclined, you're only going to see them in movies made from like the year 2000 to maybe 2004. 2005. All right. Should we talk for a minute about Celery Man himself, Paul Rudd, who has one of the best dance sequences in film history <laughs> in this movie? A latter day Will Smith song where I was like, ooh, this does not age. Like, that is, like, and they play the entire song. I don't think I've ever heard that Will Smith song. And I'm oh, like I have, huge... I know, like, I know every word to that song. Not proud of it, but I know every word to that song. This song is used like, it's a hot new club track that like Paul Rudd's going to dance to, and it is not. It never was. I don't remember this dance scene. What are you talking about? It's when they go to the club, and it's when she's hearing everybody saying about like who let her in here. Uh-huh. You know, all her clothes are also out of date and everything. Then the Will Smith song starts playing, and Paul Rudd goes into like a 1920s one-man show, steals like a microphone stand, swinging around like a cane, like doing like break dancing. Yeah, taps up and down the steps. It's like full-on Bubsy Berkeley time. I have zero recollection of this. Oh, Kara, it's like four minutes long. Wow. It's like a big part of this movie. It astonishes Rosie, Michelle Pfeiffer's character. <laughs> and it's what, and then they get in and they sort of like dance a little cheek to cheek. Yeah. Maybe I watched a cut that that's not in it. I don't know. Oh, I don't know how they could cut that part. That's my favorite part. It was a Dutch version that I watched. It had Dutch subtitles. So who knows? It's the date that they're on where right before they kiss for the first time. No, I remember them being at the club. I remember her walking through and feeling very out of place and like she was too old to be there and her clothes sucked and whatever. I have no recollection of them dancing. Man, it's wild because that is a lot. That's a lot of this movie. Interesting. But is that when she wears the ridiculous bell skirt that she has that like scene where she's trying on all the dresses yeah yes that skirt made me laugh so hard but look it does this i love that line where she's like but like but look what happens when i do this and she's like then don't do that like no you don't understand women's clothes are really stupid and sometimes you'll look fine and then you'll do something and you know you could wind up doing that accidentally or just like standing up and sitting down things like move a little bit and then the next thing you know you're looking like that 
it made me laugh so hard because I, I have worn skirts like that. I think, if I'm reading the scene right, I think that that kind of stuff happened to her because, mm-hmm. like, as they're walking down the street, Paul Rudd's, like, trying to, like, yeah. smooth out her backside a little bit, right? Like, not, like, grab her butt, but, like, to actually just sort of, like, smooth it out from being too poofy. Push it down a little bit, yeah. The wardrobe in this is great. It's interesting to see this character working on this TV show because we actually get kind of a taste of how Amy Heckerling works so intimately with her costume designers and her makeup artists and stuff like that. And the costume designer on this TV show is Graham Norton, who is now a very famous British TV presenter. Yeah. I love the Graham Norton show. I usually catch it on like YouTube and stuff because I don't catch it on BBC. Yeah, BBC America, probably. Yeah, and it took me a while to recognize him in this, but once I did, I was like, oh, that's so great. I'm Thank God he's in this. Again, because they had to shoot it in the UK with a certain number of English actors and stuff, there's a handful of just random British people in this movie that I recognize from like all the British TV that I watch. Well, her admin, her assistant, Jeannie, is like, I was like, she looks so familiar, and I don't know her, but she's been in like 12 different British TV shows. Yeah. Oh, wow. Like, she, because, I mean, they all they all run, you know, 10 or 12 episodes, but, like, I was like, oh, I've probably seen one of these, and I've never seen any of them, let alone, like, I don't think I've even heard of any of them, but they're all just, they're all British actors, just because they, that's where they shot it. Yeah, Olivia Coleman, who is currently playing Queen Anne in The Favorite, and will be playing the older Queen Elizabeth on The Crown in the new season, she is the hairdresser on the TV show. And there's also David Mitchell. He was on Peep Show. And Mitchell and Webb look. He's the one where um, John Lovitz is like, don't we look like we're brothers or something? They're like, no, not really. <laughs> oh, he's the one guy in the show or in the movie with a British accent. Like He's the one guy who got to keep it. Yeah, basically. Even Graham Norton's not using one. And Twink Kaplan is in there for like a few seconds in the watch party scene. So this is something that Amy Heckerling actually does. I don't know if she does it on the TV shows that aren't her show, but in the book that I read about Clueless... After the movie came out, she rented a limousine and like whoever from the cast and crew wanted to join them, they like drove around to different movie theaters and would like sneak into the back and watch it to see how audiences react. And apparently like that's a thing that she does, which I think is so cool and nice to like celebrate the work that all of these people have done because these productions are are huge deals. And, And I was thinking about this a lot today when I was reading all those articles about the scam artist production guy that like... Like, all of these people that are involved with this, like, these are people's livelihoods. These are their jobs. And so when productions fall through or when they don't wind up getting distribution and stuff, like, this can really affect people's careers and their livelihoods. And so I just think it's cool that she appreciates her cast and crew enough to celebrate them like that. You don't know if your show is going to be on, like, in two or three weeks, right? right? Like, they said, like, in three episodes or off or whatever, and then maybe two or three people from that show will go on to the next show, but not everybody and it was interesting to see the the sort of um the viewing party scene because i had actually heard that that kind of goes on you know like i feel like that's not too uncommon like from time to time maybe it was when i was listening to like a lost podcast that like the writers were actually hosting it they would talk from time to time about like getting together with their friends and family and watching the episode together and it's like i would love to do that if i worked on a show like that every week like i feel like that would boost morale and, and create a lot of camaraderie and just seems like a byproduct of like working on a project like that. Yeah, and you work so long for something. It's just like speaking from my own experience as an artist, like when you work with people on something, it's really, really cool to be able to like take a step back and like appreciate it all together.
together. And that's something that in an industry like this, you don't necessarily get to do because you work together so closely for however many months and then it's just all over and it's like you never see each other again or like you bump into each other, but no one really stays close. So I think that's cool that they could come together after the fact. Not only does Paul Rudd return from a previous Hackerlang production in this movie, but none other than Stacy Dash, Dion from Clueless. From the same production, yeah. yeah. From, also from Clueless, yep. So she plays the star of the TV show within this movie, and she's so funny. Her politics in real life suck, but I think she is a real comedic talent, and it was nice to see her again. That's kind of what's so jarring is... She is really good. Like, she's very funny and talented, and she has to really shift on a dime in some scenes here. Like, I, the one time when she's very upset that Paul Rudd's improvising, but then Michelle Pfeiffer, like, talks to her for a minute, and she, like, you can tell her character, like, totally understands, like, the politics of that moment, and is like, you're right. Like, yeah. Like, I was really surprised how much I bought it. And then, yeah, it's just unfortunate that, well, like, a lot of actors, I guess, like, you know, I gotta separate their personal life from their professional life. Roll out. When they made this movie, it was very much the time of, like, the young ingenue party girl in the tabloids. Not that that's not always been a thing. It has, but like the early to mid 2000s was a special time of this with Paris Hilton and Lindsay Lohan and all of that stuff. And they name check them like multiple times in the movie. And Stacey Dash's character says, I was a teenage girl before any of them. As far as like the age differences go, Michelle Pfeiffer's character is 40 in this movie, but the actress was actually 47 at the time of shooting. Paul Rudd was 36 in real life, although his character is 29 and plays the role of a teenager in the TV show inside the movie. But perhaps most unbelievable was Stacey Dash, who plays a teenager in the show within the movie, but was actually 40 years old at the time of production. No way. Yeah. Doesn't she look amazing? Damn. <laughs> well, she was like in her 30s when they made Clueless. Wow. Also, Michelle Pfeiffer was 47. She looks amazing. Gorgeous. What is Michelle Pfeiffer famous for? Like, why, why do we know her? How does she become famous? She was in Greece too. Duh. Yeah. Well, yeah, I know that. Witches of Eastwick. I think growing up, I I recognized her from Witches of Eastwick. I knew she was the name, and then Batman Returns is where I really got to know her from, and then went back in Greece too and stuff. But she'd always been around when I was a kid growing up. I don't I don't know that she never wasn't famous. I don't know. Actually, one of the first horror movies that I remember really enjoying was What Lies Beneath, which I guess is maybe more of a thriller. With Harrison Ford? Yeah, she's excellent in that. But yeah, she was really big, I think, in the 80s. Okay. She was in Scarface. There you go. Scarface. Yeah. I think that was... Who's she playing? Right. I don't, I've only seen Scarface once. The Girlfriend. The love interest, yeah. Oh, God, she's so beautiful in that. Because like, I was looking on IMDb, and like, the thing she's most known for is Hairspray. Shout out to uh, both Zack Attack and High School Slumber Party. The 2007 remake. Yes. But I was like, in my head, I was trying to figure out if she was famous because she was like an actress who also happened to be mega beautiful, and then became one of those, like, just the three or four names that people, like, threw around for being a beautiful actress, as opposed to just, like, an actress who was actually in things. You know what I mean? Like, one of those kind of, like, she just sticks around, but, like, I, I don't I don't know. But I guess, you know, I forgot that she was Catwoman. That's important. I feel like she has a, a very distinct look mm -hmm. as well. And incredible comedic timing, too. She's so good in this. She's so funny. I think the thing that she was like the biggest thing that she was in when we were kids was Dangerous Minds 
1995, where she plays like an inner city teacher, you know, one of those stories. Oh, Joe too loves that movie. Yeah. Yeah, Gangster's Paradise was mm-hmm. the Coolio song from it. Yeah. So I have a question for both of you. In this movie, they talk a lot about like what you can or cannot say, should or should not say. At one point, Stacey Dash's character says, why can't I just say it's so gay? And Michelle Pfeiffer's like, well, that's not really okay. Like, we, that's kind of condescending. Like, we don't, we don't do that. Like, we don't, we don't say that. But then like a couple times in this movie, Paul Rudd's character like affects the gay lisp for comedy. And I was like, that feels weird. Yeah. I mean, his character in general is like extremely not okay in a modern context. Just like the way that he behaves on set towards his co-workers and employer, like not okay. And they're all okay with it somehow. Yeah. Like he literally <laughs> throws a jelly bean down her assistant's plumber's crack and she not only doesn't like, I guess that must happen to her so much, in which case, get another job, maybe? Well, those low-rise jeans, they were really a scourge on all of us. Sure. But, like, she doesn't react and just says, like, basically puts him in his place, like, you know, real men know how to score in other ways or something like that. And it's just like, oh, it happens so often that she has, like, a retort for it. But, like, I don't it just felt like, why are we enabling him? Yeah. Well, that's a great question that you could ask of most men in the industry. <laughs> no, I, I understand, like, why we why we do that in, you know, why that happens in, in real life and stuff like that. But, like, I feel like in this movie, because she is a smart woman who's writing directing this and it feels like at different times in the movie trying to say like no like let's try to be more progressive as people and not use gay as a derogatory slur but then she has this character and like he's never checked like he just basically is he, he runs rampant both on the show in the movie which i understand why but then also as an actor in the actual movie itself like it just feels weird yeah like is that a commentary on something or is that just like a, a sign of the times no i think there's a commentary on how men especially like once they get a little bit of fame and power are allowed to just run amok and like no one really bats an eyelash at it or they'll be like oh he's so funny isn't he a joker you know like we explain away men's behavior particularly because also a lot of times like you're at work just trying to get your job done and if you raise a stink about it then it becomes a whole thing and like you might just be trying to get through the day and that's I would say like the majority of what most women are trying to do is just do their fucking job I mean look what happens happens when women do come forward and say something about powerful men. They get crucified and they have to tell their story about this terrible thing that happened to them over and over and over again. And then this, the guy still gets away with it. So to me, that feels like a commentary about how that whole thing kind of plays out especially in that industry. Yeah, I noticed a lot of that too as it went along because I think at first in the when when Paul Rudd first shows up like I am just smitten by his charm to begin with. I audibly gasped when he walked through that door. Like I feel like Michelle Pfeiffer's character like wow, it's almost like love at first sight in that sort of goofy teenage way, you know, almost like her daughter's experiencing and stuff. And so I think the character at first sort of find that kind of stuff like just flirty and cute because she's into him but she even discovers after a while like they do cross a line like I think the movie approaches that point right where they cross a line and they break up and they separate and I don't I can't remember exactly how this movie ends but it just sort of kind of drifted off for me I don't know if they even ever wind up together at the end of the movie they I think do they, just, they, they, they do okay, I wasn't sure if they were just friends and they were fine with no, being I that think way but they are together he goes to searches 
Christmas pageant. And I feel like he's not there as a friend. Like, I feel like he's there as a, a boyfriend, supportive, you know, partner to Michelle Pfeiffer, but I don't know. All right. I mean, like, yeah, he gets away with more than they address, but there's definitely things that I feel like because the main character is like in in love with him she's just not gonna see the things that are wrong with him like we all do when we're in love with people it's not great and it also helps illustrate their age difference that he's behaving in this very immature way and she is also immature but she is like trying to pretend she is the adult woman that people are telling her she is you know but yeah i think love can certainly love lust infatuation whatever can certainly kind of change how you see a person's behavior which i agree with and i think that that's fine for her character it just feels like the whole movie as a whole doesn't put him in his place at any point you know what i mean like i don't understand that we're seeing it through her eyes but it just feels like he's doing a lot of weird shit that no one is calling out but oh i wrote down very early on michelle pfeiffer in an iron Maiden oh my shirt, god i never knew that i wanted until i saw it and yeah i was like oh that's kind of incredible yeah definitely also and this is the scene where she has the two pens in her hair she wears a suit and tie and yes please also the kids wardrobes were yeah. out of control <laughs> like they're so crazy i love Sirsha's costumes it's so cute her song parodies are great even though they're a little bit dated you know probably would have helped if this came out like closer to 02 talking about britney and also alanis but also how dare you with those digs on britney spears she's an american I'm treasure just not talented Ugh. Poor Brittany. It was very funny, though. Yeah. So, again, this is something that we've talked about on a couple different episodes that Mikey brought up in the Locus Talking episode about the Cheerios box. When they're going grocery shopping, and it's one of the many times that they're talking about Dylan, the, the boy that Search is in love with, she's saying, Search is saying phrases like jingles of like, Lucky Charms, they're magically delicious. And then there's like uh, the suave shampoo. She's like, but it's the blah, 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 and only half the price of this. Like, she's like saying these things that have felt like what we've sort of described before that like, it's used as a joke in here and doesn't feel offensive. Even though that might have been like a, hey, we can give you the financing to make this movie, but you have to reference X, Y, and Z. You know what I mean? Like, it feels like if that was the case, or maybe it's just a joke. I don't know. But I, I like the way that they were weaved in here if that was something that was required. Or if not, it still works for me anyway. I love Michelle Pfeiffer's line because it feels like it came right out of Amy, like something Amy Heckling says to her own daughter and something I'm surprised my mom never said to me. But when she just, uh, she says, it's magically delicious. And she goes, well, it's it's not magic. It's, it's sugar. sugar. Yeah, my mother would say that. One other thing real quick when they prank call all the people they prank call the Fonz they prank call Henry Winkler yeah I was just about to say this and he gives them like over the phone just like a hey no it's lower and it's just it's it's just it's it's nice but when they cut to him he is laughing really hard reading Sartre so he's like reading this like heavy existentialism and laughing hysterically and that made me laugh which is another theme that we've seen in quite a few of Heckerling's movies. Josh reads Nietzsche by the pool, and they reference Kafka in the last movie. And so she has this kind of thing, I guess, with philosophers of a particular bent that I think is funny, that she kind of sneaks that kind of stuff into the movies. You're right. Like, it's just snuck in there. But I think in a broader sense, like, some of her characters go through existential crises through their films, you know? So it's nice to see that she knows what she's talking about by just adding those little little hints throughout yeah. and stuff. There's another uh, shot when she is arguing with the network about whether or not she can say sh- or like the character can call somebody a schmuck or maybe a putz. I don't know. It was some Yiddish word. A putz, yeah. 
and it cuts to her reading the joy of Yiddish and she's like using that reference book to try and prove like, look, it's like, it's not a swear word. And they're like, but it means penis. So you can't say it in the bad way. Although uh, I just listened to the look who's talking episode that we recorded and baby Bruce Willis calls somebody a putz in that too. So I guess I think that's probably just a word that she loves. And now that's in two of her movies. Yeah. She comes from a Jewish family and grew up in New York in a neighborhood with a lot of Holocaust survivors and was just like, so this is just like part of her culture and like where she comes from. And I I think like there's been uh, not a lot of Yiddish through her movies, but it definitely has come up multiple times. And like I mentioned last episode, Mina Savari's character is based on Kafka's final lover, who later went on to play an important role in preserving the Yiddish language after the Holocaust. So there you go. Nice. I think that's all I got. I was a little worried about this movie. I'm still a little worried about the next movie just because, you know, Loser wasn't good and it's been so long since a movie that we... I mean, it's been 12 years in her career since Clueless, right? And it feels like it just... Not that she's not capable of good things, but it feels like literally it's a struggle to get things out there. And so I feel like maybe I'm judging a book by its cover or whatever, but I maybe just because I haven't heard of these movies, but I was worried about these. But overall, I'm just so glad that we were back to a movie that shows how talented and funny and weird she can be and this did not displace my top three movies like it's still i still like look who's talking more than this but it is streets ahead of the other three or four or whatever that we talked about so far so i'm trying not to get my hopes up too much but how could i possibly not enjoy a movie about vampires made by amy heckerling starring alicia silverstone and kirsten ritter who i also love a lot like how could this possibly be bad but at the same time trying not to get my hopes up too much just in case but if it is bad i know it's not heckerling's fault at this point i think we've established she's a genius and she should be allowed to make more movies although at the moment after the last few years she's been adapting clueless as a musical which debuted yesterday maybe i think you just sent the New York Times thing from last week just a little bit ago, so... Brian Rodriguez posted a photo, I believe, on Twitter of that in the subway. He saw the poster. Yeah. Unfortunately, it is entirely sold out except for $500 tickets, so I will not be seeing Clueless the Musical off-Broadway, but I think it's awesome that it has sold so well, and I hope that they get good reviews, because I want Amy to have lots of success, and I sent you that link to the New York Times profile. Highly recommend reading it. It's really interesting. The basic theme of it, though, is like, has she not gotten work because she's a woman? Question mark? Maybe. Who knows? Here are all of these examples of all of these times where she didn't get work because she was a woman. So I don't know. Like, how many times do we have to, like, ask that question? But I found it to be an interesting read. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, this is definitely back in the right direction from last week. You know, I'm glad, like, I really like her perspective on things. I like her point of view. I like how strong she comes through in her work. I like that she writes about things she knows about, like, really well, too. Like, things she knows really well about, like the industry and how to, all the things about this movie, about being a successful single mother. And I like that she can make movies that don't necessarily get 
too dark and serious all the time. Like, it's great that she just has a way to keep a sense of tone straight and levity. Like, I really wish that someone would give her a blank check one day and just go do what you can and, you know, make what you want. And no one's going to fuck with the release or the distribution or any of that shit. Because if Catherine Bigelow, why not her? Like, all this stuff. Like, I read, I saw some crazy fact that, like, over the lifespan of the Academy Awards, there's been, like, over 400 directors nominated. Yeah. Like, 10 of them women, yeah. one of them won. Mm-hmm. What is that about? Like, it just gets so frustrating. I want to see more films like this. Like, I, it expands my sense and my knowledge and my understanding of the opposite sex and stuff. So, like, like I feel like only better things and good things can come out of more films from creators like Amy Heckerling. So, you know, it's been a little discouraging just having my eyes opened up a little even wider, you know, first with Charlize and now with this. And I'm just really glad that I'm able to see this work and experience this work and enjoy this work. So I'm dying to see what she can do with vampires. Yeah, I... Oh, man, I hope it's good. (laughs) We'll find out next week. Also, this is the first episode we are putting out in 2019. So Happy New Year to both of you and to everyone listening. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. We'll be back next week for Vamps. And then in two weeks, we'll wrap up this little run with Red Oaks, her episodes that she's done for that show. So if you're watching along with us, I guess, first of all, email us, cinemakers.cageclub.me. But in two weeks, we're talking about her run on Red Oaks, but probably also Red Oaks as a whole. So I think there's like 26 or 28 episodes of that. So go check that out on Amazon Prime. But a little bit of an advanced warning, we will be covering that. Go do your due diligence and watch it so you can listen along with us. Do either of you have any other thoughts about I Can Never Be Your Woman? Norm MacDonald was originally cast as the ex-husband. And according to Norm MacDonald, he grew a big, bushy mustache for the role and when Hackerling told him to shave it off, he quit the project. I saw that, and I thought that was very funny because, I mean, not funny in like a, oh, like that scamp, but just like very Norm. But they also referenced Norm in this movie. They, they, they mentioned him at one point, and they also mentioned Neil Israel, her ex-husband and father of her daughter. The first guy who auditions for the nerd role is Neil Israel. So I guess she's just like weaving real names into her scripts and seeing who picks up on it. I'll leave you with this. This is an excerpt from not the most recent profile of Hackerling in the New York Times. This is from The Ringer, from a few years ago. Which we've talked about a couple times, right? Yeah, yeah. If I've said I read an interview with her, that's probably what I was talking about. It's called True Confessions of a Female Director, I think. But it says, female directors have and will continue to set foot in uncharted territories. How can they not, when so much of it is uncharted? And every so often, a triumphant milestone makes the news. Frozen made co-director Jennifer Lee both the first woman to helm a Walt Disney Animation Studios movie and the first woman to direct a film that earned over a billion dollars in box office gross revenue. When Ava DuVernay, a woman, signed on last spring to direct the forthcoming blockbuster A Wrinkle in Time, she became the first woman of color to direct a live action movie with a budget over $100 million. And we know now that that worked out pretty well. It continues. With this summer's Wonder Woman, Patty Jenkins will be the first woman to direct a DC Comics movie. These are monumental achievements, but they are underscored by the immense pressure on these films to succeed, to stand for something larger than themselves. An unfair truth of the industry is that the opportunities for all women to direct superhero films in the future will be determined by how much money Jenkins' Wonder Woman makes. Again, we know that worked out pretty well, and yet there's still not a whole lot of women getting greenlit to make those movies. And yet there was still talk of not having her come back for the second one until Gal Gadot was like, uh, no, if she's not back, I'm not back. They're like, uh, 
I guess she's back then. And so the last sentence says, The female director in the 21st century has cleared so many bars, but she has not yet achieved a milestone that's less glamorous, but no less important to both creativity and equality. The right to fail. Ooh. Yep. I mean, that's exactly what you were saying, like, almost every episode, Kara, where it's like, guys just continually get... I mean, I think of Alex Proyas, Joey, <laughs> my love-hate relationship with his movies, because they're just like, I don't understand how he's able to make another one and another one <laughs> and another one, because they just all feel like incredibly successful failures. Like, it's just really bizarre. And like, yeah, I mean, there's, you know, most movies seem to fail, and yet those directors have made two or three of other movies, so... That is, yeah, a whole other level. Well, on that note, you can go to cageclub.me or facebook.com slash cageclub or at cageclubpod on Twitter and Instagram. Email us, cinemakers at cageclub.me. Check out our Patreon. If you want to pick the next run of Cinemakers, you can do that over there, patreon.com slash cageclub. Go check that out. We can even put out a Patreon-exclusive run of Cinemakers. And come back next week for Vamps right here on Cinemakers. I'm Joey Lewandowski. I'm Mike Manzi. And I'm Kara Galloregan. And we'll see you next time for Vamps right here on Cinemakers. Goodbye, goodbye!